2: Good morning. It's eight thirty on Monday, November fourteenth. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a coalition of civil rights groups wants to bring an end to corporal punishment in Mississippi public schools. Then, how doctors at the Mind Center are finding ways to better understand living with Alzheimer's disease. Plus, a virtual screening of the U.S. and the Holocaust hopes to open dialogue about the reality of anti-Semitism in America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is one of 19 states that still permits corporal punishment in schools. Reports show children of color are more likely to be hit with an object as a form of school discipline. In an effort to confront the problem, the Mississippi Coalition to End Corporal Punishment hosted a panel discussion at the NAACP State Conference and Policy Institute this weekend. It's part of their efforts to end the practice. Ellen Reddy is executive director of Nolly Jenkins Family Center, and Brian Wells is the chief spokesperson for the Federal School Discipline and Climate Coalition. They share more with MPB's Lacey Alexander.
3: We formed the Mississippi Coalition to End Corporate Punishment in October of 2020, in 2012, Knowledge Family Center ended corporate punishment in the Holmes County Consolidated School District. Since that time, we recognized that particularly brown and black children and children with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by violence inside schools. And so we wanted to end corporate punishment for all children and make schools a safe place give young people the tools and skills that they need to resolve conflict, as well as teachers and school administrators. Um, But it really came in response to the level of state-sanctioned violence that's going on inside of schools.
4: Gotcha. And I know this may seem like a little bit of an obvious question, but tell me why uh, these entities believe that corporal punishment doesn't work. What about this practice is excessive or abusive? And what are maybe some solutions that we could use instead of what you guys believe to be an abusive practice?
1: Yeah, I would say, and this is Brian. well, you know, we have found often that this issue actually is a bipartisan issue. Um, when you're talking about eliminating corporal punishment, um, you know, we may have different agree- uh, different ideas on how to get there, but across the board there is an agreement that there is an elimination or should be the elimination of corporal punishment um, in part because of what it teaches, right, our kids. Um, and, and in part of what it teaches, not just our kids, but teachers themselves. We find that corporal punishment, one, you know, there is no real lesson on what was wrong that's taught, because schools are often lacking the nuance to deliver that full expression uh, for the lessons learned. But then on the other hand, it just teaches them to be angry. It teaches them that the best way to deal with them is to exclude them, seclude them, beat them, and then hope that they will develop into responsible, mature citizens. Um, And, you know, we come to that Kind of question of, well, how does that happen? There's a gap that's there. Um, but then the other final thing I'd say is it teaches the teachers a lesson um, that we would say is erroneous. Because often in public schools where corporal punishment is still alive and well in 19 states, um, you know, we find that it is that one interaction that students have and, and youth and young people with government. So it teaches them that government in and of itself is real punitive, is somewhat petty, and doesn't necessarily explain to them the full ramifications of what they have done. And it teaches these teachers that sometimes become future politicians to take those same practices of punitive measures and apply them to the broader citizenry.
3: And I think, Lacey, the other part is that, you know, there is research that shows that corporate punishment does not work. Um, Children can be injured. We know children who've been beaten so severely that they suffer bruises, um, blood clots. Um, It also has a negative impact on children's mental health and well-being. There is a relationship between um, corporate punishment and, for example, reading levels. Children who are fearful of being hit um, can't focus on their academic studies. You know, it's like sitting and being in constant fear because you never know when it will happen to you as a student. Uh, We do not permit corporate punishment to happen in childcare centers. We do not permit it in facilities where juveniles are housed. Uh, We only, in the state of Mississippi and the other 18 states, permit corporate punishment in public schools. It is the only place you can still legally hit a child. And we just think that it needs to end. You know, our children, our young people, are our future. We talk about untapped resources. Our young people are untapped resources. Um, There's a history of racialized violence against black and brown bodies and children with disabilities. We have to look at that. We have to address those issues. And ultimately, we have to create environments where children feel safe. Um, The learning environment is made up of school administrators, teachers, and students. And so that should be an environment where young people have the right to express their, their feelings. We also have to recognize that young people have rights. Um, and these issues speak to the dignity and, I think, humanness of young people and what we want to see when it comes to our young people.
4: Thank you so much. Um, can you guys elaborate on the um, data and the, maybe what you believe to be the reasoning behind why children of color are especially affected by this?
3: Well, again, I, I spoke to a history of racialized violence inside of our communities. Um, I think if you look, there is a relationship between historic lynching and corporate and pu- pu- punishment in contemporary public schools. Um, when we look at the data across Mississippi, tw- over 20,000 children were corporally punished in the year 2017 and 2018, of that 20,000, 12,000 or more of those children were black children. When we look at um, the rate of black girls being punished, they're more likely to be punished five times more than their white peers. Um, for black boys, they're also disproportionately punished. Um, we really, you know, as advocates and as organizers, we want to dispel this myth around um, young people around our communities. We want young people to go to school and feel safe. We want young people to engage in their education. Um, but when we, we we treat children with that kind of maltreatment, they're not likely to respond to us in a positive way. I mean, we, we recognize that aside from a child's relationship with their parents, children are more likely to build a Uh, relationship with teachers. But if that teacher is hurting them, they're not likely to build that kind of relationship. They easily disengage in the learning environment. So those are some of the reasons why we um, feel that corporate punishment needs to end.
2: That was Ellen Reddy, Executive Director of Nolly Jenkins Family Center, and Breon Wells, Chief Spokesperson for the Federal School Discipline and Climate Coalition. In 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics called for a ban on corporal punishment. Coming up, how doctors at the Mind Center are finding ways to better understand living with Alzheimer's disease. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. 57,000 Mississippians have Alzheimer's disease. There is no known cure, but at the Mind Center, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, new research is underway to study aging over time. MPB's Rhonda Dunaway recently talked with Dr. Kim Tarver, Director of Clinical Services at the Mind Center. The conversation begins with the question, do we know what causes Alzheimer's?
5: That's a complicated question, um, but the uncomplicated answer is probably not. <laughs> um, so we, we've, we basically have been going on uh, the amyloid hypothesis that, uh, that there are abnormal amyloid and, and tau proteins that accumulate in the brain and in the neurons. Um, but there are some things that argue against that hypothesis, and that is that some of the, some of the drugs that have come along – uh, targeting those amyloid proteins and actually t- getting them out of the brain has failed to produce any clinical benefits that we can see when we, you know, so we can remove the amyloid, but we don't see enough clinical benefits. Some of the most recent research uh, I think is pointing into the direction that if we, if we target those patients while they're at the mild cognitive impairment stage of the disease, then we may really be making a, a difference. Um, there are three drugs in, in phase three, I, th- I think, of trials right now um, that are all what we call monoclonal antibodies. So those are antibodies that target certain things in the body. Um, and uh, those monoclonal antibodies are, are targeting the, the beta amyloid or tau proteins to remove them from the brain. Um, and those drugs are still in trials, but we're seeing some, some, uh, some cognitive benefit uh, in, involved with those. It's not a dramatic change, uh, and that may be because of, you know, who gets chosen to put be put in those trials. Um, But there there is some uh, some reason to be cautiously optimistic.
4: What I noticed about the studies is that they were done. The some of the studies I thought was reading about um, and coming up with the doubts about the amyloid being the actual cause. Is that right? Right. Okay.
5: A couple of reasons for that. One is. Uh, if you do autopsy studies, you'll find a number of people who have the, the amyloid uh, deposits in their brain who never presented with Alzheimer's disease uh, or were never presented with Alzheimer's type symptoms. Um, and so there's, there's some evidence that, you know, there's, that there's more involved, a lot more involved than just those plaques and tangles that we talk about.
4: What I'm wondering is that, like, were there any differences within the patients themselves, like were maybe some of them active and some of them sedentary? Did that make a difference?
5: So so we do think now we've got some, uh, a growing large body of evidence um, that those things that are vascular risk factors that we know are cardiovascular risk factors, for example, uh, are the same things that are that cause um, an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So there's a good bit of evidence that if we are aggressive enough at, at, at targeting those cardiovascular health um, choices um, earlier in life, that, that we may make a significant outcome uh, in terms of the disease process. I would say right now for those that are alive today and listening to, to you know, to the radio, uh, don't count on the medication and be working on those cardiovascular risk factors.
4: As someone who's just done some reading, you know, I you know I look at what's the difference in dementia and the difference between Alzheimer's symptoms. How do they do they display different? Or is am I using those words wrong? Is Alzheimer's what? dementia or a form of dementia? How does that work? That, that's
5: that's probably the most common question that I get asked. Um, and so dementia is a general term um, that means that you're having enough trouble in some area of cognition. It may or may not be memory, okay? There are lots of different areas of, of thinking or domains of cognition that we have, but you're having enough trouble in one of those domains that somebody else is needing to help you uh, with something, in, you know, in your day-to-day life. So that's, that's, That's what makes a diagnosis of dementia, which is a very general term. And then dementia has many different causes, um, the most common of which by far uh, is Alzheimer disease. Um, Coming in probably an increasingly close second is vascular disease in the brain or patients who've had a stroke uh, and then have some cognitive decline uh, following the stroke, there's a new category, uh, or not really new, but but it's becoming more important, and that's uh, sort of mixed dementia. So we think that a lot of the people that previously got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease also have significant vascular disease as well. And so that may well be the reason that those people present earlier with symptoms uh, versus the, those brains that we see on autopsy that have the amyloid deposits and, and didn't have any symptoms at all. Uh, I would I would say that those patients are probably the ones who have healthy blood vessels, okay? So there's two different processes going on in, the, in those, um, and therefore that's a mixed dementia.
4: Dr. Kim Tarver with the Mind Center at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you
2: so much. It's been a great conversation.
5: Thank you, Rhonda.
2: Coming up, a virtual screening of the U.S. and the Holocaust hopes to open dialogue about the reality of anti-Semitism in America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor, from fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB
1: public media app.
2: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Tomorrow night, MPB, in partnership with the Jewish Federation of Oxford and OxFilm will host a screening of Ken Burns' The U.S. and the Holocaust, followed by a panel discussion. Joshua First is the Croft Associate Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Mississippi. He talks with our Michael Guidry about being involved as a panelist and the importance of maintaining a dialogue about the history and dangers of anti-Semitism.
0: I've done other programming for uh, the JFO in the past. Um, we We did a um we actually got the um, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum to bring an exhibit to the library. Uh, at the University of Mississippi and I was involved in bringing that there and, um, the JFO did kind of a reception with community members and, um, I, I sort of led a talk, uh, uh, around the exhibit at the library and also, um, sort of, um, spoke at a reception after that. And we also organized a, a speaker as a kind of opening event for, for the, this, uh, this event. And, um, let's see, what else have I done? I, I teach courses on the Holocaust at the University of Mississippi, and so I'm kind of the go-to person in in some ways when you're looking for a historian to to speak to these issues. Um, so I think that's kind of the origins of it.
6: Uh, um, with with I mean, you, you teach a course on the Holocaust, um, and I, I yeah,
0: I teach actually I teach it uh, a few of them. I I teach a general course on on the Holocaust, and then I teach a course called um, the Holocaust in Film. And most recently, I teach a course on actually the same topic that this film is, is about, Americans and the Holocaust.
6: I think that's one of the things that when this did premiere on PBS, uh, it ignited a lot of conversation. Uh, the the Holocaust uh, at, at the more rudimentary levels, at, at the, the, the secondary high school levels, uh, is taught from a very, a very European lens. I mean, we, it's taught in a way that really examines what happened in Europe. But was it, what is it about the content of, of this documentary and, and seeing a, a more direct role that the United States played in this that, that is igniting these conversations as someone who teaches a lot of the same things?
0: Well, I would say that first of all, um, the United States has always been within the narrative of the Holocaust. Okay. That's never been excluded, but we have been understood traditionally as the liberators. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of emphasis has traditionally been placed when, when it's taught in the classroom, both high school and college, that the U.S. liberated all these camps um, in 19, in mainly in April, 1945. And, and, um, we promoted ourselves as liberators. Um, and that's true, except for the fact that we probably liberated the least number of camps than any of the allies. And, um, we didn't really liberate camps that were involved throughout the war, uh, with, with mass murder, but that's just because we were, the U S soldiers were where they were, right? <laughs> I mean, they couldn't control that. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, the more recent kind of um, investigation that that this film is really part of is showing, one, how before the war and even into 1941, um, there were a number of Americans who were sympathetic with Nazi Germany. Also, um, there's been a lot of investigation into the sim- the same attitudes that um, that um, Nazi Germany held against Jews and people of other races. Um uh, were held by many Americans. Many ma- mainstream American ideas were, were very similar. Um, and then third, I, I should mention, um, before, <laughs> you know, like, I, you can listen more at my panel, right? But, um, the third thing I think that is important to understand is that, <clears throat> um, the Nazis took a lot of ideas from, from the United States, particularly, you know, like Jim Crow and, and, uh, you know, Manifest Destiny and these sorts of, Ideas were were written into uh, Hitler's main book Mein Kampf, and so I think that's that's useful to bring out also, while still emphasizing the, the role of the U.S. as a as a liberator. I, I don't want to take that away from it. You know, it's just complicating a little bit um, with this with this new documentary.
6: Of course, and uh, this and this the screening and this panel, the, the premiere of, of of the of the documentary on PBS, followed by this particular screening and and panel uh seems timely um uh, the the role of antisemitism in the united states um has has received a, a lot of attention um why is it important to reflect on uh the things that you've just discussed and the things that the that the the documentary sheds light sheds light on why is it important to to have this conversation now and to have this conversation in perpetuity
0: well, right now, I, I think um, it's, it's. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a good ha- com- time to have this conversation. Number one, um, we can't forget these things. Um, but I think now, in particular, I mean, there's there's a political movement in this country that, you know, while not um, entirely um, uh, anti-Semitic at its origins, it does, you know, there there are increasing numbers of, of far right groups that express anti-Semitic ideas, and and they've got some support by you know major politicians so um, we can't forget that and we've got to we we've got to show how um, political movements develop very slowly down uh, a dark path rather than happening all at once and I, and and so that's that's useful to keep in mind that you know evil doesn't just wake up and and take over while you're sleeping um, so um, hmm. it, it happens over 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 many years through incremental steps.
6: You you're a part of this. You you've mentioned other things you've been a part of as far as like bringing traveling exhibits and um and working um working with the the Jewish Federation of Oxford mm-hmm. as a panelist and 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 I mean as a professor, uh, what do you try to you personally try to get out of uh, these interactions, whether it's a virtual interaction like the screening or it's the interactions you have every day with the students in your class about, about this topic?
0: Well, I think that um, I, I like to see the students or the audience like make connections that they haven't made before. Um, I, I think that the, you're, you're absolutely right what you said at the beginning that we're used to hearing about this happening over there in other places. And what... What this documentary does, and what you know, my courses have done, is show just how normal a lot of these ideas are until the moment in which they aren't. And that's what I want to see them get out of this. That's what I I want to see those those connections um, uh, really, you know, um, be revealed um, in in the process of them then hearing, um, you know, he, um, taking the class or hearing a lecture.
6: Well, and we certainly w- wish you and the rest of the panel luck uh, in making those connections. Uh, Joshua First, Croft, Associate Professor of History and International Studies at the University of Mississippi, and one of three panelists during the U.S. on the Holocaust virtual screening and panel event tomorrow, uh, hosted by the Jewish Federation of Oxford and Oxfilm. Joshua, thank you so much for, for sharing some time and some of your expertise on this issue.
0: Thank you so
2: much. Organizers are inviting people from all communities to join this virtual discussion. The event is free, but registration is required to participate. For more information, visit mpbonline.org. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.